Amen. Our scripture this morning comes out of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Mary Nethercutt is coming to read our scripture for us this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His, Mary, his mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is, means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and make it be for us the word of life that we might be people of life. And now, God, hide me behind your cross that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So Christmas is coming up. Christmas is coming up, and we know that uh, your Christmas is likely going to be very similar to my, to my Christmas. My parents are in their mid-80s, Amy's parents are in their late 70s, and we have recently decided, they, along with us, have recently decided that we're not going to be able to go home uh, to our, either one of our parents' Christmas during, uh, during uh, this Christmas season. Uh, we know that that was a very difficult decision for all of us to come to, and, and it breaks our hearts. But there is, um, if, if you're like me, there may be, a, I don't know, just a little, your heart may have leapt for joy just a little bit, not having to see all of your family. <laughs> Uh, we know that the, the Christmas and Thanksgiving season, it brings out, uh, sometimes it can bring out the best in families, but oftentimes it brings out the worst in families. Well, if there was a sibling rivalry there when you were small children, maybe as, as adults or young adults, that sibling rivalry has turned into a, a, to quite a competition. Maybe if it, was a, if it was a quirky aunt or uncle when you were a child now, uh, that you've realized that quirky aunt or uncle is no longer just kind of kind of quirky, but they are uh, they're 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 really just kind of nuts is really what they are. Or or it may just it may just be that the the chaos of your family is just too much too much to be able too much too much really to be able to handle. And so there may be an inkling of of excitement that you're not going to have to see your your family, but most. Most Christmases, there is, um, there's, 
Well, again, there, there's, there's someone in your family likely that, that you just don't get along with. Again, whether, whether it's that nutty aunt, whether it's that sister-in-law that you don't see eye to eye with, it may even be your parents or grandparents, or it may be a child or grandchild. And, and you found that, that when, when, when you're together as a family, when you're together as a family, you, uh, you, you treat them rudely, you're condescending to them, you're, you're disagreeable toward them, you're, in, in fact, a, a bit judgmental toward them. As, as well. You treat them as outcast or, uh, or, or as someone who is unworthy or someone who is unlovable. And, and, if, and it, well, to be honest, it may even be you <laughs> that is the one that is, it, it may be you that's feeling those kinds of things as well. Again, by a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, and you've never felt like you've been able to measure up, and there's something in your past that, that you've been able, you've been able to, to kind of grow beyond, but, but your family hasn't been able to. Joseph knew, knew what we were going through. Joseph knew what we, what we go through when it comes to the chaos of our, chaos of our families. We're, we're looking at these hidden characters of this Christmas story. We know, we know the main characters. We know Mary, and we know the shepherds, and uh, we, we know the angels, and we know, we know so many of the, of the major characters. But there are other characters that, that although they're, they're hidden, they're in the background, we have found that they, they play an important role in this story, and they teach us some very, very important lessons as well. We, we have already looked at Elizabeth, we've looked at John the Baptist, and today we're looking at a character that is, that is very unique because he seems like he plays a major role in, in the entire story, but there are no words of his recorded in Scripture. I'm talking about Joseph. You may not have ever noticed that before, that we don't have one single word of Joseph's recorded, not in all of, not in all of the Bible. Although, although there are no, none of his words are recorded, although he is never mentioned again in the New Testament after Jesus turns 13 years old, although there are no prayers that people pray day in and day out, like, Hail, Joseph, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. We don't pray prayers like that. And Joseph doesn't get recognition and, all the, and, and although there are a number of things that we don't know about him, there are some, I think, some very important lessons. There are, very, there are some very important lessons. And there are also some things that we do know about Joseph, and I think they also teach us some, some very important lessons. One of the things that often happens when we look at the birth narratives is that we take we take the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke and we combine them into one. I think that's a mistake. At times, it can be helpful for us to get a, a broad view of what's going on in the story, but oftentimes we combine those two stories, we jumble them together too soon because Matthew and Luke come from two different perspectives. Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective. From Mary's perspective, time and again, we hear Mary's words. Time and again, we hear Mary's personal and private thoughts. But Matthew's gospel comes from the perspective of Joseph. 
It tells a, a different side of the story. And when we combine these two stories too quickly together, we get some of the details wrong, I think. One of the details that we get wrong, I believe, is that we have this ideal that Mary and Joseph, they're living in Nazareth, they are engaged, and then the, uh, and then the census is called for, and so somehow, mysteriously, even though that even though in our minds we think that Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, for some reason they've got to go down to Bethlehem. And it doesn't, make, doesn't quite make sense. Because the scripture tells us that, that, that they went to Joseph's hometown. I think the scripture is clear when it says that Bethlehem is Joseph's hometown. There's so much evidence there's so much evidence, especially in Matthew's gospel, that, that Joseph's hometown was not Nazareth. Joseph's hometown instead was Bethlehem. Let me show you on a map exactly what we are talking about. I believe that you can see uh, here on our map. On the very, the very north side of the map is the Sea of Galilee. Between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the, uh, is the Jordan River. On the on the west side of the Sea of Galilee was a small little town. It was a faraway town by the name of Nazareth. It was not known at all, really, anywhere in Scripture. The only reason that we've ever heard of Nazareth is because Mary was from Nazareth. However, on the south side of the map, the closer south you get, the closer you get to the capital city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the center of, of, of Hebrew and Jewish worship occurred. It's where the festivals took place. It was the center of the religious life of first century Jews. Just outside of Jerusalem, just, uh, um, just a few miles out, it was six, six, uh, six miles actually outside of Jerusalem, there was a small little town named Bethlehem. Bethlehem at that time was um, a, of a, a village of, a, of around 500 to 1,000 people. It was a very small village, very, very small village. And again, because it was right next to Jerusalem, uh, it had almost become a bedroom community of Jerusalem. Even though it was about an hour and a half walk from Jerusalem, there were people that uh, that uh, they, they worked in Bethlehem, and oftentimes when they would work in Bethlehem, what they were making in Bethlehem was sent into the bigger city of Jerusalem. I'm told today that if you go there, uh, you will not be able to tell when you are in Bethlehem, really, and when you are in Jerusalem. Pretty much the only way that you can tell that you are in Bethlehem is that you can tell that you have entered into the West Bank or the occupied territories. There are 25-foot walls up all around the city, this, the city of Bethlehem. Today, it's a city of about 100 to 150,000. And so it is a, quite a large um, a suburb of this larger metropolis, Jerusalem, in today's time. Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread. But during this narrative, birth narrative account of Jesus, it's not the first time that we hear about Bethlehem in, uh, in the Bible. Bethlehem was fairly infamous. Bethlehem is where the book of Ruth takes place. Ruth was from the area around Bethlehem. And, and you may remember the story of Ruth. We learned that there is, uh, they, they're growing crops all around that area 
wheat and barley. It may very well be. I mean, it seems logical that the reason they were making wheat and barley was because they were making bread in Bethlehem. Again, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Many scholars believe that it likely was in Bethlehem that the bread for the temple was made. Uh, there was, again, a number of fields of crops, uh, lots, lots of wheat and lots of barley was raised there around Bethlehem. And so it's very likely that the bread for Jerusalem, specifically for the temple, very likely was, was, uh, was made there in Bethlehem. So when you came into this small village of Bethlehem, it would, have been, it would have been made up of farmers and millers and bakers and even shepherds. And we know that there were shepherds there because King David was from Bethlehem. Um, you, you may remember King David. David was the one where he was a young boy and he was, uh, he was selected among all of the people. He was anointed by God. He was anointed by God through Saul to be the next king, or really to be the first king, real, really, really first king that was anointed by God. Um, certainly, um, there had been another, but, but really Saul, Saul really acted more as a king and prophet. And so Bethlehem came to be known as the city of David, just like Jerusalem had been known as the city of David. There was a prophecy about Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so this was a prophecy in the book of Micah that a savior would be born in Bethlehem. And later on in the story, later on in the story, we find out that um, Herod, King Herod, he, he had heard of this prophecy as well. And it was because he had heard that prophecy then that he, he demanded that all of, the, all of the little baby boys under three years old be slaughtered because he believed that um, after the wise men visited, we'll, we'll be looking at that here in just a few weeks. It was because of this prophecy here in the book, in the book of Micah. And so there is strong, strong evidence that, um, that Joseph was from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Again, it makes all this, I, for me anyway, it helps me understand why Mary and Joseph found themselves in Bethlehem. Uh, also, it, it helps me understand why after Jesus was born and they had heard of the plot, well, they had actually been warned by an angel of the plot to kill their young son. They fled to Egypt. Do you remember what happened after, after they had heard that Herod was, was dead? They were, going to, they were going to come back to, they were going to come back to Bethlehem. Again, I think there's very, very strong evidence that Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown. Again, for me, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So we, we, we believe that, that um, Joseph was from Bethlehem. We are not sure, however, how old Joseph was. We're not sure how old Joseph was. Many of us, um, well, most scholars believe that Mary was a young teenage girl. 
there's strong evidence. I mean, the, in fact, the, there's, some, there's some translation issues from the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, uh, to, and also the, the Hebrew Old Testament. The prophecy from Isaiah in the original Hebrew says a young girl, as it was translated into, into Greek, the Old Testament, it says a young virgin. Whatever the case, we know that Mary was a young girl. Likely the age of 13, 14, maybe as young as 12, but likely 12, 13, 14 years old. And so we learn from Mark's gospel that an angel had appeared to Mary first. The angel, that angel is not necessarily mentioned here in the gospel, or we don't understand that from the gospel of, of Matthew. Listen to what it says. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and willing to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Again, we're not sure exactly how old Joseph is. In the Roman Catholic tradition, they believe that Joseph was very old. They believe that Joseph was very old. Uh, in, around that, in the second century, around the year 150 or so, as, they began to, as the church began to study these birth narrative accounts, they began to fill in some of the gaps. They understood, they understood that Jesus was, <clears throat> Jesus was divine. They understood Mary was the mother of Jesus, and so that made Mary the mother of God, literally. They believed that Mary was the mother of God. She was holy. She was holy, meaning she had never been intimate with another man. Um, and, and they came to believe that Mary had not only not been intimate with another man, they believed that Mary was never intimate with Joseph. So why, how in the world did they come to this conclusion? Well, think about it. Think about it. We don't, if, if when you were a kid, you didn't like to think about your parents being intimate outside of the time that you or your siblings were conceived. We don't want to think about, we don't want to think about that. That, that it, it kind of it kind of weirds us out just a little bit. Our our our, our parents, they I mean, our, our mothers and our fathers, they were, they were too nice and uh, to do something like that. Well, that was the mentality that they had with Mary. They believed that Mary was so pure and so innocent they could never bring they could never bring themselves to to think that that the very mother of God could ever be intimate with another man. It was dirty. It was beneath Mary, the mother of God. But then we read that Jesus had brothers and sisters. What in the world do we do with that? Well, according to Catholic tradition, according to Catholic tradition, they say that Joseph was a widower. And he had been married before. He had children with his previous wife. His wife died, and then he was married or he was at least engaged and then later married to Mary. And he was much, much older. Catholic tradition says that Joseph was 93 years old when he married Mary, and he was 111 when he died. 
He was tenderly caring for the Christ child. He married Mary, according to Catholic tradition, like a grandfather figure, never intending to consummate the marriage. As Protestants, however, we tend to think of Joseph around this age, kind of a regular kind of age. He could have been 15, 16, 17 years old. Most of us, in our mind anyway, we picture him a bit older than that. Uh, one interesting thing, if you look at your nativity that you may have in your home, you can likely figure out whether it is a Catholic nativity or whether it's a Protestant nativity based on the age of Joseph. So, so let's look specifically again at the birth narratives that we have in the gospel in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, again, it just simply starts out. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. There was a period there. And then it continues. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I am, if I were a betting man, I would bet that there was a lot that took place between the end of that first sentence and the beginning of that next sentence. Think about it. Think about it. According to Matthew's gospel, Joseph had simply found out that his, that his, uh, that his fiance, Mary, had found herself pregnant. He knew that he wasn't the father. He absolutely knew that he wasn't the father, and he had every single right. He had every single right to take her outside the city gates and have her stoned to death, according to the Old Testament law that we find in the book of Deuteronomy. He had every right. In fact, that's what should have been done according to Old Testament rules. According to Old Testament rules. I can only imagine, I can only imagine how his anger turned into, turned into rage when he heard Mary's story that, um, now, Joseph, I've got something to tell you. I'm pregnant. I can imagine, I can imagine his anger, but then I can imagine his anger turning to rage when Mary came up and concocted, at least in his mind, I'm sure, concocted this far-fetched story. Um, hey, Joseph, um, I, I want to let you know, it wasn't another man. Um, I'm still a virgin. Um, God, I mean, what's conceived in me is of God. I, I, can, I can only imagine the kind of outrage that had to be present in Joseph's heart. He would have felt betrayed. He, he would have, very likely, he would have, he would have been jealous of, of, the, of the man that she had uh, probably cheated with, but then he would have been absolutely outraged when she brought when she brought God into the picture. I mean, Mary, if you're going to make up a story, at least make up a story that's believable. Don't make up a story. I mean, just tell me what happened. Tell me it was a neighbor boy. I know that we've been uh, carrying on this long distance relationship. By the way, it very likely was a long distance relationship. And there's a very good chance that Mary and Joseph had never met one another. If, if indeed uh, Mary is from Nazareth 
and Joseph was from Bethlehem, it very was, it was likely that they were cousins somehow. The uh, marriage had been prearranged, as almost all marriages were in first century ancient Near East. Um, and so it's very likely that they had never met one another before. And so again, um, Joseph hears this story. He would have been fully, fully within his rights to take Mary to trial, to have found her guilty, and to have her stoned to death. But her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So now what does this mean? Think about it just for a moment. He knew that the child wasn't his. However, had he gone ahead and taken her to trial, everyone else would have known that the child wasn't his. However, however, if he would have simply divorced her quietly, everyone, and I mean everyone, would have thought that it really was Joseph's child. They had had a child out of wedlock, uh, and, and Joseph just wasn't stepping up to make her an honest girl. And so now, not only was Mary going to be ostracized and, 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 and really disowned by her family, now even Joseph was going to be ostracized and disowned by his family. Because the people would have thought, well, if it wasn't his child, if it wasn't his child, he would have had her stoned. If it was his child, the young man needs to step up and do the right thing. It makes all the sense in the world, by the way, if this is the case. If his family has ostracized him, if his family has disowned him, it makes all the sense in the world. Then when they found themselves in Bethlehem, Mary is getting ready to give birth to this child. It makes all the sense in the world because his family had disowned him. Surely there was no one in his family that was going to take them in and to allow this child that was now being born out of wedlock. There's no way that they ever would have let them into their house. And very likely, even if, even if it was a hotel, which many scholars, it wasn't really a hotel. It was probably a, a family member's home. There was no room for them. And it wasn't because necessarily because the streets were flooded with people. It was because there was no room for them. Because they knew, at least in their minds, they knew that this child had been born out of wedlock. Joseph had every right in the world. Every right in the world to be bitter, to be angry. He had every right in the world. But then an angel appeared to him. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what kind of impact did Joseph have on Jesus' life. Again, we don't have any words of Joseph recorded. We don't really have any other actions of Joseph recorded. But I think, I, I, I think maybe we can learn some things 
when, God, when Jesus begins to pray and he begins to call God Abba or Daddy or Father, I think that tells us a lot about the kind of father and the kind of dad that Joseph was. Jesus tells a story about, uh, about, a, about a father who had two sons. One was always there with him and, and the other, other son was, was a goof off. He, he goofed off all the time. In fact, he was such a mess up, the, the, the younger son came to his father and said, Dad, give me all of my inheritance. Well, his father was alive. Can you imagine? He asked for all of his inheritance. So the father a, a, obliged and gave his younger son the son that was a goof-off, the one that messed up time and time and time again, this father, this, this dad gave his son all of this money. And, and of course, of course, the goof-off, he continued his goofing-off kinds of ways, and he went to a foreign country. He squandered all that he had on wild living, and then finally he realized that he had nothing. He found himself feeding the pigs, and he wondered to himself, could I ever go back to my father could I ever go back and, and be a servant of my father? I know, I know I could never be accepted as a son again. And so he decided to come home. And you remember, do, you, do you remember that scene in the, in the parable of the prodigal son? It's as if, it's as if the father is going to the end of the, end, end of the driveway every day and, and he's, looking down this, he's looking down that way along the road and he's looking down that way along the road hoping that this would be the day that his son would return home. And finally... And finally, as the, as the dad goes to the end of the driveway and he looks down this way, he sees no one. But as he looks down this way, he sees his lost son coming home. And he runs to him and he embraces him. And his son simply wants to be a servant, but his father accepts him as a son again. You know, I don't think that we have to wonder very long or very far where Jesus learned that lesson. I think he probably learned that lesson from Joseph, his dad. Joseph had every single right to be bitter. He had every single right to be, to be rude and judgmental, not only to the rest of his family, but also to Mary and this child that really was not his. But that's not how Joseph reacted he, acted, he reacted with love. He reacted with grace. He reacted. He reacted as one who was forgiving. He reacted with faith. So during this Christmas season, the season that so often we are around our family members that, oh boy, <laughs> whether it's going to be on a Zoom call, whether it's going to be on a phone call, or whether it's going to be in person this year, you just simply don't want to see him. Again, it's a broken relationship, and, and very likely you have every right in the world to be rude and to be condescending, to be unforgiving toward them. But I think the lesson that we learn from Joseph is that we are called to be people of forgiveness. We are called to be people of hope. We are called to be people of love. Would you bow with me? Oh God, this is indeed a, a difficult season for so many of us. A season in which we are around family members and 
even colleagues that we struggle to get along with. We struggle to forgive. We struggle to love. But God, you have called us to follow the way of Joseph and to be people of love, to be people of forgiveness, to be people of hope, to be people of faith. So Lord, we pray that you would pour out your gift of faith, your, your gift of hope, your gift of love and peace upon each one of us during this Christmas and Advent seasons. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.